to another episode of Click Click Bang Bang, a photography podcast. I'm your host, Mez. And I'm Toby. And this week I remembered my headphones. Today we are talking about gaining informed consent. That sounds complicated. I don't really know much about it. So we've got ourselves a very special guest today. First guest on the pod, and uh, this guy's pretty special. He's going to tell us a little bit more about this topic. Today on the show, we have Sean Brokenshire, who is an NGO communication specialist for over 10 years, working in-house on communication strategies and also on content in the field. Hey, Sean. Hey. <laughs> so, Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So I've worked in the not-for-profit space for the last 10 years, and um, I worked for an international NGO. During that time, I had the um, pleasure of being able to go into the field to see them work in three different countries. Um, I went to Cambodia, Papua New Guinea, and Bangladesh. What was happening there? Like, what, what took you over there? What were the kind of things that you were... You were dealing with and seeing. Cambodia and Papua New Guinea were both tuberculosis projects. Um, so that particular NGO was helping patients with drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis, really resource-poor settings, um, and there was real gaps in the health system in those countries to sort of respond to that need. And in Bangladesh, there was actually two different um, things going on. There was the local population of Bangladeshis uh, in the capital who were working in um, basically intensive factories. Yeah, and so that NGO was doing OHS work actually. And then on the other side of the country, there was the Rohingya refugees, which had crossed the border um, from Myanmar. And so, yeah, at the time, it was the world's biggest refugee camp. So, Sean, what are you doing for these organisations? What's the kind of work that you that you do on the ground and also maybe back here in Australia behind the scenes? So it wasn't really my typical day job to go to the field and, and do this work. My day job was actually in the office working in communications, sharing stories in Australia and New Zealand of the work of the organisation. So, yeah, when I got to go to the field to do these um, assignments, it was a, a real privilege. And so I brought my photography, videography, um, journalism skills, and basically sought out um, stories from patients and field workers to send back home and around the world. And were those stories that you came up with yourself or were you given guidance by the organisation as to what they were looking for exactly? A bit of both. Um, basically, uh, the organization would tell me what the context was, all of the information, background information that I'd need to know. And the teams in the field, you know, were running hospitals, they, um, you know, running operations like latrines and logistics stuff. And they would basically show you around and then they'd introduce you to, say, patients that they thought basically would be interesting for a story. And then you'd go through the process of getting consent from those patients. So that's, I guess, the crux of what we're talking about today. So first time out in the field, that's got to be pretty daunting and like eye-opening to say the least. Um, yeah, it was. On top of that, you've got to get consent from from people that are in pretty bad situations. What's, what's going through your head at this point? Yeah, well, um, before you go to the field, like, um, the organization has some pretty good guidelines on, on, you know, they brief you on how to get consent, but ultimately it's you in the spot having to, you know, do your best to go through this process and 
make a decision on whether you feel like this patient has actually understood everything, all of the risks that might be part of that, um, if that story was published or not. So I guess that's a really good question is what is consent versus informed consent? Is that a distinction you can explain for us? In the dictionary, it's kind of like informed consent is, you know, um, you tell the person all of the information that they might need to make a decision and they make the decision. And from my perspective, that's not really adequate. It's like there's a whole lot of other factors that you need to take into consideration, especially if you're working with an NGO with vulnerable populations. Um, There's, you know, um, power dynamics. So if you're wearing the same logo as the doctor that's treating them, um, the distinction between you as a journalist and the medical care that they're providing is not necessarily that clear to them. And they may think that, telling their story is dependent on them getting the medical care. So that's something you have to be really careful about, that you explain that to that person, that they can actually say no, it's their right, and um, it's not going to affect the care that they receive. Did you find that once people did understand exactly what they were being asked to do, did you get more no's or more yeses? Was there there more resistance than you expected or less resistance, or were people happy to you know, get the word out there and I, and I guess get some spotlight on their situation? It really depends on the individuals. Um, actually, most people um, wanted their story told. No one outright said no, but in retrospect, I made the, the call not to share their story because I felt like I hadn't got proper informed consent from them. Um, so that's sort of something I made that decision when I got home and, you know, sort of mulled over the process and how they reacted. So you, you still went through the process of getting the story, but then later on made yeah, a decision so not to publish? One of the challenges is you're often working with translators, and so you're trying to explain concepts that they may not have actually have any concept of, like social media. Um, in resource-poor settings, they may not have any access to it or know really what it is. And so... Uh, you have to make a call on whether they fully understand um, exactly what you're asking of them. And sometimes, yeah, those things get lost in translation. Even if they say, yeah, they understand, they may not. They may just be saying yes. And so you would kind of make that call on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, in in Cambodia, I interviewed a teacher, actually, who was being treated for TB. And... He was actually, you know, quite informed. He wanted to know exactly how his story was going to be used, which publications it was going to be shared on. And in that moment, I couldn't actually promise anything. It may not be shared at all, or it might be shared worldwide and you'll see it everywhere. I couldn't make a promise either way, and I couldn't be specific about where it would appear. So he was asking, you know, quite pointed questions, and and that's fine. Um it's good to have that sort of, you know, challenge. And that was one of the stories, actually, that I didn't share in the end because I felt like even though he agreed to it, I didn't feel comfortable sharing his story just based on the, the interaction that we had. Working in that environment and in that mm. industry, have you seen, without naming names, have you seen examples of where you know, you've seen stories published by organisations in this field that you think perhaps if, you know, if you were in the position of the person that published those, you might not have gone ahead with that. Is that something that's that's common in the industry or is there, are there uh, things going wrong? Or Sometimes it's it's more likely the case when, when the organisation, you know, this is a widespread practice across the industry, you might engage a contractor 
that happens to be in the field or you may have sent to the field and they may not have the same you know um, objectives as the organization and so they may want to get material that's outside the scope of what that organization might want and so they may go around wanting to take you know photos of villages and um, you know people in the street street photography that kind of thing and that um, if they're wearing a, a logo shirt of that organization that can create problems with the community um, so that's that's yeah sometimes there's some different you know expectations out of what someone might be photographing and they may not be as attuned to the ethical considerations around consent and so how often do NGOs recruit outside photographers and videographers to do this kind of work for them is it common or do they often just send in-house people who might have a better understanding it's usually in-house people um, but it's often the case that you know media organizations might want access to their project um, and that's common across in a in a big emergency a cnn type emergency all of the media organizations want access and the organizations may you know accept or decline those people coming into their projects and taking photographs but generally like especially with a medical organization it's it's very much um, decisions are made on the ground by the doctors that are caring for the patients and if the doctor says basically bugger off then it's not happening right so in a way the organization is acting like a buffer and a protector quote-unquote of Mm. their clients their patients yeah well every organization is different but the one that i was working for was a medical organization and they took patient confidentiality very seriously I often thought working in comms and, you know, my colleagues in fundraising, it's it's a real ethical dilemma um, for an organization to be medical, but also fundraising, um, you know, so you, you require information and stories and photographs and videos of your patients, um, these people that you also have this duty of care to. So it's a real balancing act of, you know, protecting their rights, but also being able to, to raise money back in European and Western countries. So with that in mind, what kind of images and stories are you are you trying to, to get to not only get your message across and make people aware of that you you know you need mm. you need their funds to help these people, but also you, you know keeping you know these mm. people's dignity intact. There's a few different um, sort of objectives out of getting these stories. One, yes. You need to raise funds um, and, you know, the people that give you funds want to have some accountability on how that money was spent and what sort of outcomes you were getting with that work. Um, So, you know, patient stories, um, you know, where a patient comes in sick and leaves the hospital well again, that sort of stuff is really important. Um, But aside from that, like I worked in communications where our objective was more around raising awareness about populations in distress and the emergencies that they were facing in their lives. Um, So in that case, it's more like journalism. It's more like, um, you know, telling a wider context, explaining what's going on, what are the driving factors and um, how many, you know, thousands of people have fled the border or things like that. So is it just not about... Uh, telling these stories of these patients, but also about, you know, uh, attracting people to come work for the organization? Yeah. So uh, another, you know, type of content that's really important for for NGOs is sort of interviews with staff, um, talking about the work that they do on a day-to-day basis. And that, um, you know, on a strategic level, it's like um, if the organization really needs anaesthetists at that time, 
because the, there's just not many in the pool of people to go to the field, then communications can help by getting um, stories from anaesthetists and sharing that in the home societies where they're trying to recruit from. And um, yeah, sharing that within medical networks and um, hopefully inspiring other people with that profile to sign up. Going back to informed consent, I mean, how, when you're approaching someone to interview them or take their photograph, obviously you're there with a translator most of the time. If someone is not willing to maybe give their face or their name or certain details, um, do you ever come across situations where they're willing to tell their story, but like, how do you protect people's privacy? That's really important. And that's part of the consent gaining process is explaining that they can share their story and remain anonymous. That's their right. If they feel like their story should be told, but it actually might put them at risk, there might be some repercussions, then, um, yeah, you can go through um, explaining, yeah, we could take your photograph from behind so that no one can see your face. Um, we could change your name. We could change the village that you're from. We could change your age a little bit. Those sort of, sort of details which help to sort of obfuscate who they are and prevent you know people that know them from recognizing their story and that's really important for you know patients that might be stigmatized um, patients with HIV could be really important if um, you know if they're in a society where homosexuality is could even get them the death penalty disclosing their status and um, their preferences uh, you know can endanger their life or put them in legal danger we've talked on previous episodes about some of this poverty porn that people kind of go on these these trips to find situations like organizations that that you work for are, are trying to do good work in and they've simply gone there to you know get a selfie in front of a some sort of tribesman or whatever it might be how does that kind of increasingly kind of sick tourism mm. affect organizations like you guys does it hinder or or does it help yeah i think it it hinders. You know, not all organizations are holding up the highest standards either on how they portray um, the patients or beneficiaries that they're helping. It's quite common, you know, to see poverty-stricken children staring right down the barrel of the lens, looking sad and, you know, helpless. Ethically, I, I, I would really have a problem with that. Other organizations tend to take a bit of a a higher road where they show images of um, beneficiaries actually having agency over their lives. They're going to collect water, they're, you know, um, cooking their own dinner, finding food, doing everything that they can to survive. And, um, you know, the NGO is just there to, to help. They're not actually saving these people like some organizations might, you know, try and portray it that way. Tourists coming into disaster zones as well is um, problematic. People are just there trying to survive and, you know, imagery of, you know, selfies and selfie sticks. And the world is global now. People can go anywhere they want, basically, if they can get access. So um, I think it's up to the individual to make the right choice and not exploit people in that way. What do you reckon, Mezu, always arcing up when we see things like that? Yeah, I have, a, I have a real problem with stuff like that. And I actually think, unfortunately, a lot more charities and NGOs are leaning more towards the whole, you know, sympathy versus empathy uh, line. I feel like an empathetic NGO will produce content that uplifts and shows what the organisation is doing to help and how the people are helping themselves. 
But unfortunately, I think a lot of NGOs and a lot of charities really play on the, you know, poor, stricken, downtrodden human being. Sympathy, sympathy, give us your money. Unfortunately, I feel like that's more common in the industry. Um, But it is good to see a lot of organisations now kind of trying to rise above that. Um, But I have a real problem with it. And I have a real problem with a lot of photographers going into disaster zones or, you know, areas of really poor poverty and taking photos for no real reason and no real benefit to anyone but themselves. I think a great example of that was, I think it was the last episode we talked about, Toby, uh, when we we're talking about competitions and a photographer that won this really big worldwide competition had taken this photograph of this poor Vietnamese woman in the Highlands and it was actually taken on a, a photo tour group. And zoom out and there's like 12 other dudes from some first world country taking these photos of this poor woman and not showing her in a really powerful and hopeful and positive way, but actually really downtrodden way. And I think that is a huge issue with photographers going into areas like this and producing imagery that does not uplift. Well, for sure, you could say that that person didn't have consent of that person to publish their photo. 100%. Yeah. That's a huge thing too. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. That, that was Kind of my point when I asked mm. the original question is that is a massive problem because you do see mm. hundreds of thousands of people going to the various places, Chernobyl, mm. all sorts of places. I mean, that, that's not necessarily a place where people are still still suffering, but it's, mm. you know, there's a certain history to, to places like that and Auschwitz yep. and various other things. There's a lot of people out in the world still today that who are really being taken advantage of and you know Mm. we're all conscious of of getting consent in our own countries which are not third world countries and people get scared of of just going out and doing a bit of street photography which is 100% legal but people still kind of think oh god but then when they go over to Mm. overseas they that kind of goes out the window yeah I think a lot of people think that as, as soon as they leave the border that um the all bets are off and the rules are different you know but I think also that oh, I'm just take, this person's just, you know, poor and living in the street. Why do they need to, why do I need to get a consent form from them or get verbal consent? Or, I don't need to. I'm just looking at them. Or they think that, uh, you know, they'll never know because they'll, they'll never see it. When it comes down to it, like getting informed consent is all about respecting the person that you're photographing or the person that you're getting the story from. If, if you're not respecting them, then you shouldn't do it. Really, and that applies to organisations and individuals. We spoke before we b- before we started recording. You were telling us a story about when you were on a job with a with another another person who was he or she I can't remember was was not sure if they should be taking photos. Just tell us that story. Okay, so it's quite common in um, NGOs for people that work in the office to um, go to the field occasionally, not for any real communications or fundraising purpose but it's sort of a way to sensitize staff in the office um, the realities of the work that's going on in the field so that they can get a greater appreciation for it and that will hopefully enhance their work when they get back home so they, they're a bit more motivated and you know yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so sometimes when when staff go on those trips you know I've heard um, people say that they felt really uncomfortable taking photographs of beneficiaries and you know people in emergencies and disasters in refugee camps when they feel like they haven't really got a clear purpose for doing it um, because they can't share those stories because they haven't got consent from those people I've actually traveled um, with a colleague in that instance um, 
where you know we were side by side basically taking similar photographs and yeah she was starting to feel really uncomfortable about it and even I was a little bit uncomfortable but I knew that I was there for a purpose it's quite invasive you know walking into someone's little um, hut and you know talking to them and then asking to take their photograph like if someone walked into my house and asked to take the, um, my photo I'd be like what are you doing here surely surely that happens all the time sure <laughs> and so yeah I mean for me I, I justify it because I know that I'm there for a purpose I'm there to re- help um, these people by raising awareness and raising funds and um, I'm going to use that material when I get home. It's going to be shared around the world. Um, so for me, I, I can justify that in my mind that, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit invasive, but I'm doing it with the best intentions. Um, whereas if you're just there as a sort of, um, even if you're there for work purposes, but you're taking photographs for no real usage, then it becomes a little bit questionable. And I guess that's the difference between journalism and voyeurism like obviously what you're doing you're not a journalist but you're in a journalistic kind of position there where you're communicating stuff to the world whereas like what kind of like what we were talking about you know with those sort of like photo tour groups and people going to third world countries and just taking photos of people on the street living in abject poverty that to me is pure voyeurism and has and is not photojournalism and really has no purpose i get uncomfortable at people just doing that generally they don't they don't even have to be in a in a poverty-stricken place like if someone's working on the oscars and they're like oh look here i am on the red carpet i'm like "Mm, who cares about that other than you i mean the, the only purpose for taking and showing that photo is just really to pump up their own tires more than yeah. anything yeah i mean i've been uh, i've been to some pretty poor parts of the world i've been to you know cuba and parts of south america and one thing i did do when i was in india in uh, in mumbai was was visited uh, a slum so there's a slum of of daravi which was kind of made famous by the film slumdog millionaire ladies and gentlemen what a player and I think it's known as the biggest uh, slum in, in Mumbai and it's home to more than a million people, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And when you actually fly out of Mumbai, you can see it quite clearly. There's these flat, you know, corrugated iron roofs everywhere. Um, but I distinctly remember going in there, and this is, we're talking many, many years ago now, like 15 years ago or so. Uh, one of the things that they stipulated on this tour was that we were not allowed to take um photographs we could take our cameras in there and stuff but we were not specifically asked not to take photographs and I thought you know okay fine that's you know kind of a good thing but there were people on the on the in the group and there was only I think eight to ten of us who were kind of like oh that's a bit shit you know I can't take photos and it's going kind of thinking well exactly as you said Sean you know put yourself on the other side of the lens and and think about how that would how that mm. would feel it really comes back to being empathetic on the person that you're going to take the photo of or take the story from. A lot of the people that um, the NGOs um, gather stories from are really in the most horrible time of their life. Like they've probably just had a really traumatic experience. And you can imagine like putting yourself in their shoes, even in a situation back home, like if you just had a car accident, would you really want someone coming up with a camera, taking your photo and saying, hey, do you mind if I share this on the internet? You need to give people time to think about whether they actually want their story told. You know, I've come across that as a journalist as well, where you're going to difficult scenes, it might be a car accident or, you know, I've covered murders and all sorts of things back in the day. And it's a horrible Hmm. feeling to have to, 
walk into that situation and as a news person and say, oh, hi, you know, can you give me a mm. comment, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, I hated it. That's why I didn't stay in news journalism because I just couldn't deal with that. I, I felt like I was invading their privacy in, in the most, you know, raw and horrific way. But um, some people yeah. are happy to, to share and, 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 and want that opportunity, but, but you know, obviously many aren't. And, and trying to yeah. ascertain you know, who wants which side of that is very difficult, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's real ethical dilemmas around photography in developing countries, especially with NGOs. And, you know, I, I was quite happy the whole time that I worked um, in the not-for-profit space. Photoethics was probably the biggest debate we constantly had. Um, right. It was always debated, you know, and... Sometimes a, a photograph would be um, published and then we'd have processes where someone, um, you know, privacy officer would say, hang on, that shouldn't have gone out and would revoke it. We'd, you know, pull the photo, change it to another one. Um, There's really good processes around protecting patients. So, Sean, you just spoke about how, you know, in the office, there's usually a lot of debate, open debate about photoethics. And I think that's really great to hear that it should be a constantly evolving um, subject in these contexts, because obviously there's so many, everyone's personal situation is so different and a blanket policy or procedure or rules is never really going to cover it all. Do, Do you have any sort of circumstances where you've had to evolve your your procedure to protect someone's privacy? I had one case when I was in um, Cambodia where I interviewed a young woman um, that was very sick and we went through the process of getting her consent. Um, I felt like it was pretty solid. Um, She understood um, why we're gathering her story and how it would be shared. And um, I also interviewed the doctor that was treating her um, he was a French doctor, and um, so yeah, I, I took a photo and actually I filmed the interview. Um, so I felt pretty good about that. I thought I'd, I'd probably release her story when I got home, but by the time I got home, I actually found out that she died. So that was really sad. But when I found out that news, I was like, oh, I guess we can't use the story. If someone does does die and you have their story, is it hmm. is it does that just basically cut off your opportunity to share that story or do you have to think of another Not, way of doing it yeah um well the original intention was to basically you know release her story on video um and it would be part of a, a regular monthly video wrap-up of you know that ngo's um, activities around the world but i realized that um we had to take some extra steps now to protect her privacy and her anonymity Um, So what we decided to do was actually um, create a podcast. Um, We basically wrote an episode that um, explained everything that the NGO was doing in Cambodia um, with tuberculosis. And we voiced um, this patient's story with a staff member in the office. Um, So we had um, basically the translation of what the patient had told me. Um, yep. and we got her to voice it in as if she was talking on her behalf. Oh, I see. Okay. So it was, it was like the, the original interview, but using someone else's voice essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So that, um, and we changed her name, her age, and also the village that she was from, but also still had the audio from the doctor talking about this patient. So 
it ended up being a really engaging story, um, but it meant that we had to be a little bit more creative about how we um, protected that patient's rights, even in death. And what images did you use? Well, basically, I took a whole lot of photographs of the different activities that were happening, you know, um, doctors in the wards, um, basically um, created a slideshow that we released the podcast with and put it together on YouTube. Um, so that was a way of creating visual interest, creating audio interest, a, a narrative story that people could listen along to. Um, her story got out. It was just in a different form than um, we had originally intended. And that was, yeah, a way of respecting that patient's rights. I've got like a kind of a really practical question, <laughs> which sounds like such a weird thing to ask after that heartbreaking story. But I'm just imagining you, you know, out in the field in all these different kind of environments. Like what, what's in your kit? Like what do you take with you? Um, I think that's evolved over the years. Um, when I first went to the field, it was all about, um, well, DSLRs shooting video was the big thing then. Um, so tripods, um, you know, mic preamps, XLRs, um, lapel mics or boom mics. Um, and it's quite cumbersome to carry around and a laptop to back everything up to at night. And I'm sure they're quite intense for the person that you're interviewing. Yeah, you can imagine setting up in a quite a cramped, you know, patient ward. And um, yeah, you're setting up this big rig right in front of a patient in their hospital bed. It's it's a little bit confronting. I never set up my gear until I've got consent. I'll leave my gear outside the room until I've had a chance to talk to the person, sit down with them, go through the process, make sure that they're happy to have this big rig put in front of them and hooked up to a microphone so and all they, of that. They know exactly what they're getting into. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, it'd just be rude to rock up and shove a, a camera in front of a sick patient and say, hi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then over the years, you know, like mobile phone video cameras have come into vogue and, um, you know, the quality of um, that stuff is quite good. Um, I know in the last few years we had, you know, all of our comms team was trained on how to use mobiles for videography with, you know, using gimbals and um, uh, lapel mics plugged straight into the phone. Um, and that's that's really interesting. Um you know, I've had colleagues that have been on rescue boats in the in the sea um, and filming off the side of the ship with a gimbal um, and then, you know, using the same um, camera to film an interview with a patient. And yeah, it, it's different. I mean, the technology is changing and so are the techniques in the field. Thanks so much for coming in to talk to us today, Sean. It's been eye-opening, very much so, but um, yeah, really appreciate your words and appreciate the work you've done as well and I'm sure all those many people that you've done stories on appreciate your work too so thanks man no worries thank you Click Click Bang Bang a photography podcast is produced by Meredith Schofield and Toby Farage hey that's us <laughs> it is us and I also do the editing and Mez you look after the engineering side of things I guess yeah 
like sort of, yeah. <laughs> sort of, kind of, sort of. Yeah. And uh, there's a bunch of other people that have kind of helped us to get this thing up and away. Indeed. Like our amazing branding was designed by dingdingding.co, a.k.a. Your Better Half Tobes. Definitely my better half. And the fabulous music you're hearing in the background, let's just have a little bit more of a listen there. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. Composed by our good friend Simon Filiuzzi, a legend. So good. How good is that music, Tobe? So good. So, so good. So good. And look, remember, you can subscribe to this podcast everywhere. Yep. Send us your comments and ideas for the show. And please don't forget to rate us. It really helps others discover us. You can check us on the socials at CCBB Podcast. We'll see you soon. See ya. (laughs) 